Sure. How old is he? He is four years old. Oh, okay. He's, he's awesome. I've been there, done that. Yeah, nice, nice. Yeah, having a four-year-old around is a great reminder for how it was when we were four uh, years old. Kids are the best spiritual teachers. They are. They teach you patience beyond patience. <laughs> so anyway, we had gotten started talking about killing in the yeah. sense of mosquitoes, because mm -hmm. the whole point that I was on was that we've got them here in Thailand. Boy, did we ever. And that the Thai people deal with mosquitoes the way you would expect people to deal with them. Okay. And that um, always some fire has been in, in use. Like, for instance, the mosquito coils made of cow dung burns very slowly. This takes about eight hours to burn this up. And uh, <clears throat> it doesn't give off much of an odor or a smoke by itself. But for some reason, the mosquitoes just don't like it. That's wonderful. I need some of those for summer. Mm-hmm. So, um, but the Thai people do uh, the killing. Now, the word panatipata uh, actually means the taking of air or the taking of the breath. And so fish, as I said, for many centuries have been okay to eat by the Buddhists because they don't breathe air. Right. <laughs> But really what the Buddha was talking about, and I think that there is an event that has something to do with it, and that was that he was sitting on the side of a hill at one time, and um, he saw the shepherds bringing their sheep and herding them at the wrong time of day. That, you, that they normally would take them out early in the morning, let them graze uh, in an area that they could be mindful of, and at the end of the day, bring them home. But now we have the shepherd bringing the, uh, 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 the sheep all back uh, mid-morning. And so the Buddha, he knew something was up. And so he went to check it out, and this is when he uh, found that one of the... Um, shepherds was having trouble getting a lamb um, unhooked from a thorn bush or stuck in the rocks or something like that. And so the Buddha himself grabbed this lamb, this tiny little lamb, and carried it with him and went back to the, uh, with the shepherds because they told him that they had been ordered to bring all of the sheep because the Brahmins had demanded a great big new ceremony in the name of the king. So he comes to the king, and you know that he was of basically royal lineage. He was known by, and this was King Pasanata, who was also a good friend of his anyway. And so he went to King Pasanati, and in that sutta he says, um, he explains to him, but this is also the scene that we have from Buddhism, that Buddha is carrying that lamb 500 years before Jesus gets a chance to get famous for carrying a lamb. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, 
and that what he was explaining to him is is that it's for ceremonial reasons that these are animals are being killed it's for rituals ceremonies and magic and that the Brahmins will do nothing in the aftermath, but just have a whole lot of feasting done for quite a number of days until the meat eventually rots, because they'll kill more than they can eat. Oh, really? Wow. And so this was what got all of this started about this is now one of the precepts, but it got converted from a priest into a precept from a natural state of mind that one has who is of noble mind. So if one practices the Eightfold Noble Path to the point of the Sambhojanga, in other words, we develop the Eightfold Noble Path into the seven factors of enlightenment. You can see them in order, in fact. The, the first Sambhojanga is uh, unremitting mindfulness, unremitting investigation, unremitting can-do attitude, unremitting joy, unremitting peace and relaxation, unremembering, unremitting stability. Yes. Uh, which is, uh, they call it equanimity in English, but actually stability is a much better word. And then that last one is on the Eightfold Noble Path, right organization of mind or right unification of mind. And when one has a unified mind, one's mind is noble. And when the mind is noble, that means like that we are finished with desires and wanting. So we're naturally going to keep the precept of not taking things that are not given because we don't want anything. Mm -hmm. Also, the butcher, if he has mind is noble, even if it's noble tonight and tomorrow it's not, and he's back to being a butcher, but if he goes into slaughtering that lamb with his mind is noble, he won't kill it right then. Mm-hmm. Because his compassion for that lamb is going to overwhelm his desire for the meat. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is a mental position. When the mind is noble, we refrain from killing things. So like with mosquitoes, when your mind is noble, when you can see him biting, he's sitting there on your no- on your arm right there taking a big delicious hunk out of your skin and you can feel it and the sensation is what most people will call pain. And we don't like mm-hmm. that feeling. So what we do is we hit that mosquito. That mm-hmm. guarantees more. There is karma associated with that killing. Because normally swatting that mosquito while it's taking its its meal is going to leave the nose of that mosquito under the skin. Yeah. That's when bacteria and infections and it, it begins to really swell up in pain and whatnot like that is not because the mosquito, when the mosquito is finished, he withdraws and everything and it doesn't swell up. It doesn't get bumpy too much. 
because all he's actually putting then in is a kind of saliva that is designed to break down uh, the capillaries so that the blood will, will come back out. Mm-hmm. So if it's easy for him, then because a lot of mosquito bites don't leave any mark at all. If it leaves a mark, that's okay because it'll be gone soon. And in fact, in Thailand, we have an ointment that everybody uses. But you have to be mindful to put that ointment on. Mm-hmm. That the normal mindless thing that people do is scratch. Oh, definitely. Children will scratch. They don't like it. And we scratch mindlessly. So mindfully, we refrain from scratching. And when we mindfully refrain from scratching, then we can put an ointment on it to help it cure uh, the skin. And then everything is easy. But when we scratch it, it can get infected. And in fact, there's a very famous uh, archaeologist who, got, uh, who died because of the mosquito bite. And he received that mosquito bite from a mosquito close by uh, King Tuk Nat Aman, who uh, was known as King Tut. And this is the story of the curse of the mummy, is because the archaeologist died very soon after he opened that thing, but he died because of a mosquito bite that kept bothering him, and he kept scratching it, and it became infected, and he was in the tropics of uh, uh, Egypt, where infections are really deadly. And, and when you're an archaeologist, they tell you not to shave when you're going on a dig, because they don't want you to have any little tiny cuts on your face. Because when they're when they're opening up those ancient sarcophagus, sarcophagi, whatever you want to call it. There's so much ancient bacteria and like just like Dormant from stuff, sitting there right. rotting and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. they say it's very it's very prone to cause infection. Mm-hmm. Precisely. So yeah. this is a whole thing then about mosquitoes. And I tell you what, I know a lot of people who don't want to stay in retreats over at uh, Watson Milk because it's literally in a forest. It is mosquito infested. And there's also a joke. Mm -hmm. The joke is the bananas here. The bananas are full of phosphorus. And while the mosquitoes are attracted to carbon dioxide from a distance, the breathing, the one who they actually uh, nibble on is the one who has been eating bananas recently. Whoa, that's crazy. No, this is what the Thai people do with the farong as part of the national joke is, is that in the evening time when the mosquitoes come, give the bananas to the, to the farong and they'll eat them because they don't know. Oh, that's good. Yeah, well, then the, thai, then the, then the farong don't want to stay because they, they are infested with mosquitoes <laughs> tonight. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, mosquitoes are crazy. It's like, I think a lot has to do with intention as well. Because, like, if I was hunting this a tiger... This is what it's all about. But let us say below the intention is the actual word sama sankapa that is often translated as tension, intention, is the right attitude. 
Yeah. That's what the Buddha meant, was the right attitude. Right. I always took it as like, because it's not, it's never been, and you've helped me in some ways to see this as well, too. Like, it's never been like, here's Buddhism, here's your rules you got to follow, like like the old Christian kind of way, Western way to go about doing things. Like, here's the rules. And Islam. Or, yeah, Sharia many law. Many many philosophies as well too. It's like, but with Buddhism, it's like, um, it's not so much about here's the rules, bro. So stick to the rules. It's like, there's all kinds of rules in life. There's all kinds of different situations with different contexts and different different cultures and everything. It's like, but what is your intention? Because because if your okay. intention's wrong, the suffering will be present. But if you have pure intentions, how can that suffering find a way in? Okay. So if the mind is noble and the attitude is uh, joyful and loving, then your intention is going to be the result of that attitude. Totally. This is what I was getting at. Okay, so you're using the word intention and I'm inviting you to go just down a level, down to the attitude. The sam, uh, 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 sama uh, sankata is the Pali word. Right attitude. And the right attitude is so, so important. Because most of us are, are um, we are uh, born okay. We are nurtured well. And then, by the time we're age six, we're put to work called school. And in that, we become a victim. We become a workhorse. Learn your ABCs. Pick up your clothes. Come when daddy calls you. Put that cell phone away and do your homework. I mean, (laughs) you've heard variations of those kinds of things. Yeah. And we pick them up our whole lives, and then we begin to live our whole lives that way. Mm-hmm. As a victim, as one who is ordered around. Mm-hmm. And then Especially, we remember those things, and we order ourselves around in adulthood. Especially in materialistic capital, capitalist countries. Capitalism, exactly. The name of the game is growth. And the name of the game is money, money, money. And that's, mm-hmm. I couldn't be further from that. <laughs> if, if people understand the concepts of souls or DNA, maybe that's a better one. It's not in my DNA to, it's like, uh, just not me, man. No, you know, it's your, like, your DNA could have gone the other direction. You could oh, be yeah, a corporate executive with that same DNA. No, it's attitude. Uh, oh, maybe, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. and that attitude is based upon right view, how we see things. A child could understand it because you see that... Every child understands it, and then that is beat out of us. Exactly, yes. Some Brainwash cases, literally. Yeah, in some cases, literally. Unfortunately and sadly. Yeah. People can't stand when someone is content. Like that because that doesn't that doesn't drive a business or enterprise to be content. Well, 
even though even the crooks will say say that you can't con an honest man. What they meant is you can't con some or you can't con someone who doesn't need what you're conning him yeah. with. In other words, he's not hungry for your bait, so yeah. you can't switch with him mm-hmm. because he won't I, take yeah. your bait. Yeah, if and you that, convince guess what? Them. That's true with voting. That's true with government. Yeah. That's true with religion. Yeah. It is true yeah. with, and so attitude is yeah. everything. Attitude you know, about education. You know what happens if on every social media platform or on every tv channel they're constantly putting the government in your face because you know why if they don't put the government in your face every day 24 7 what happens you forget about them they no longer have any control or power over you because there's no reason to think of them (laughs) <laughs> but when they're very, very good point. well not only that but i think that it's not the government it's that the media has to sell something you probably mm-hmm. heard the press say if it bleeds it leads yeah yeah okay mm-hmm. government is bloody right now <laughs> yeah yeah because uh where do our thoughts come from well there is no thoughts but if they were existing where do they come from they come, it appears from the ether, from, from nowhere. So the TV or any device, you have to be careful what you put into your mind or allow your mind to wander in. It's because it just, you, your body doesn't know the difference between your own thought and a thought put there by somebody else if you give it attention. Actually, the same thing is true about memory. Many memories that we have actually is yeah. something that we constructed. One of them that, that caught me, I, I've actually watched myself go through this process, and boy, do I not have a high opinion of the human brain and the human being in general. And here's two examples. One is, is that I saw a guy on the street at university, and he was carrying a white fiberglass French horn. When I see, I played a white fiberglass sousaphone from time to time and brass and also tubas and that sort of thing. But this fiberglass sousaphone, they don't make fiberglass French horns. Yeah. It would sound good and they don't need that kind of durability because French horn players know how to take care of a French horn. Tubas and, and sousaphones are huge things, hard to take care of. And often other people are handling them. And so fiberglass is good. So why have a fiberglass French horn? Got my curiosity up. I go over and the guy's carrying a white frisbee with white tennis shoes. Is he a disc golfer? He had a white (laughs) frisbee and he had a pair of white tennis shoes sitting on that frisbee under his arm. And it looked to me like a French horn, except that it was white. So it must be fiberglass. Perception screwed up. Most people are not sousaphone players, and so they would never have jumped to the conclusion of a a, a fiberglass, a white fiberglass French horn. Totally. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Another example, which is about the memory. I remember, and I absolutely distinctly remember, my grandfather planting a particular tree a pecan tree at a particular location 
because he had just gotten permission from the government to do that because uh, the city owned a street that never was used, never paved, and it was beside, on, my grandfather owned both sides of the property in, in that area. Okay, and so he got permission to, my mom comes by and I have to trust my mom because she's got, she says, no, that tree was planted before you were born, full stop. Well, you could have not remembered him planting that at the age of three or four. <laughs> you can't do it because <laughs> it was not planted. <laughs> and she's got her own evidence. OK, so which is true. It doesn't matter. We're talking about human minds. So mm -hmm. I would just take her word for it that I was wrong, but it's a really good Dhamma example. Yeah, definitely. We construct our own reality, and then with the white French horn, and then we remember things wrongly. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the mind is, it's like everything else in life. It's, it's miraculous, yet it has its flaws, you know? Yeah. If you take it to be real in the first place. The flaws are not the issue. It's that we as humans are taught to guess, to do uh, things right, is our educational yeah. system yeah. That, that closes our minds into thinking that we know something when in fact we don't. It's in a way the educational system trains us to believe our thoughts are real. Mm -hmm. That the future is real, that the past is real. This is just neurons well, firing. Make money off of that. Yeah. Because you can't make money off somebody who's content in a forest not wearing <laughs> shoes. You just can't make money off. Yeah, right. Because they don't want any. Barefoot and mice barefoot, it's hard to sell that man a pair of shoes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, my whole deal is I want less stuff. Because I know that in the end, it makes me so much more joyous to know that I don't need anything to be happy or to feel peaceful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so simple, but it's very hard for many Westerners, particularly, to grasp these concepts or ideas. Mm -hmm. But I guess the whole thing we're trying to do is to not, you don't really have to grasp any ideas or concepts, you just have to just be, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, let's get back to that Panatipata because we have sure. been wandering around for a bit. Let's get back to that and uh, look at that there is some, because you were just mentioning it, uh, a connection now between killing, which is panatipata, taking the breath away, versus eating meat. They're not related, but somehow they have made a connection. And that connection, they'll say, well, if a whole bunch of people become vegetarians, then they will uh, have less killing done. But in a, in a way, they're being chauvinistic against plants, because, I mean, killing is killing. Yeah. Not to mention those carbines and stuff. They eat up so much field mice and deer deer babies and stuff and mm -hmm. and all the all the chemicals used to grow vegetables 
poison the rivers and poison the creeks and exactly. uh, kill how right. many? So yeah. Eating is problematic. Back to insects. In fact, they uh, they are actually experimenting now these years uh, with, like for instance, Burger King. It has a burger that doesn't have so much meat in it. And that they're yeah, really it. advertising and getting it going, and it looks like that eating bugs now is going to have a more of an impact upon the meat uh, or the production industry and the killing of, of cows and whatnot than any moral issue about thou shalt not kill. Yeah. Yeah. But what the Buddha said about this is, is that meat is not related to killing because by the time a monk receives something in his bowl, it's been through a dozen hands or more. The guy who killed it, the guy who took the, uh, the meat to market, the guy who butchered it up, the guy who uh, sold the meat, the, uh, the cook who bought it, the other cook who made the food, and then the servant boy comes out and gives it to the monk. How many hands has been on that meat? From the that's why, yeah, that's why I res I respect hunters or certain I respect certain types of hunters more so than I do just somebody who's just eating meat and looking down at hunters because I'm like a lot of hunters that I know or have seen on TV they just eat the meat that they kill themselves and usually mm -hmm. old animals that would have died from sickness or other predators in the wild and lived a happy life and they dispatch well, those, them. those are the ones the predators go after. Those are the ones the hunters go after. Man, that big stag that's so fast and he's on the run, you don't have a chance. <laughs> but the fawn, the one who's just born, you got a chance with that one and also the old one. So, yeah. But, you know, going back to you were talking about American Indians and the ayahuasca and, and all of that. It was in the plains, always done that we were sacred. In fact, the movie, um, they, uh, uh, Avatar, they yeah. do that on that planet, okay, that you have to ask permission to kill this. Please, let us kill you because we need this meat. If you do not sacrifice for your, uh, yourself, then many people will suffer. Mm -hmm. They don't do that at the Avatars. <laughs> at the uh, the killing places. Oh no! Yeah, Th those just, those animals go through a great deal of stress. Oh yes, where, mm -hmm. right? And so that gets into the meat. Is that uh, because the the animals are in such distress? But the American Indian way of killing, and in fact the Jewish way of killing it, is is that the animal gets very very relaxed. Yeah. So that it's not in. Uh, let us say, pumping out um, adrenaline full, full tilt. If the animal is struggling and trying to get away, then you don't kill that animal. Life itself in every aspect demands great respect because it's yourself. Life eats life, but it becomes something that's very negative if the ego's involved. If there's attachment to that ego, all kinds of my meat, all kinds of I've got to eat. You die so I can live is uh, uh, very harsh, uh, based in fear uh, rather than based in uh, love and friendship and compassion. 
even the way we treat um, artificial intelligence, what they call it, or or uh, these different forms of life that are popping up now with technology, we should also treat those things as well with respect. And it may sound silly, but I think one day those things are going to be, they're going to far outnumber us humans. And I think that there's no difference between those forms of intelligence and animals or humans. And I think they all deserve uh, respect because it's all the same thing. It's not apart from nature. It is, a, it is nature itself, even though it might be mechanical or have fur like a squirrel or be a human. You know? Well, we're, the natural outcome of having respect for other people then will be the natural outcome for us having respect for, for animals. In fact, you can look at what had happened in the very early times was human sacrifice, especially one's own child. If I'm willing to kill my son Isaac, then that means that I'm going to get great blessings from the God, and we find that uh, taboo and reprehensible nowadays. But mm -hmm. humankind had to go through from that into animal sacrifice on a widespread uh, scale, including uh, scapegoats and all of this kind of other thing, down to then the idea was, well, we need to kill just one God-man as that sacrifice for all time, and then we don't have to do that kind of stuff anymore. Yeah. And so that was actually an interesting way of the evolution of the human mind because we were, let us say, living in a dog-eat-dog, -dog, except we were the dogs. Cannibalism was very common 8, 10, 12,000 years ago. Yeah, and with wisdom, we can even have compassion for those people as well because it's so hard to not be a product of your culture or time. It's so difficult. <laughs> right. Good luck. Even the psychologists know enough to say, don't blame your parents for their bad habits. Guess where they got them? Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah. that's, in fact, uh, a slow wakening up of humanity, of coming into wisdom. But boy, there's a lot of lies and a lot of feet uh, But we're waking up as a culture. Even Bhikkhu Buddha Dasta says, now is the time to bring the real noble Dhamma out of the closet. It's been cloistered for centuries, sometimes with really, really good reason. Like a hundred million Buddhists getting wiped out in India. That's crazy. Well, they didn't conform. They wouldn't, they wouldn't, you know, and so the Brahmins said to, for the, we can't get, get rid of these guys, but <laughs> you're Muslims. Why don't you do it for us? <laughs> it's so, uh, it's so funny how like the Brahmins and class system is like intertwined with Hindu culture and even Buddhist culture, you know, it's like, 
all the awakened masters of different religions have always been like from the Brahmin class or you know these the highest class. Even Ramana Maharshi, I think, was like a really high class. Now that I think about it, but anyways, it's so silly. It's like class. Like what is that? Different levels of human being. Like it got cares. Like it's it such a man-made started, fake thing, you know. It got started in the following way. It got started by the Brahmins, but they were not the only ones. The Levites did it in the Jewish culture. And it happens on a regular basis, even nowadays, in the sense of racism. We are better than you are. That's the foundation of it. Now, the Brahmins were at one time capable of getting almost all of the land ownership because of, and they're still trying to do it again. The land ownership was lost by the peasantry because the Brahmin, because the Brahmins required a hefty uh, sum to do rituals, just like in the time of the yeah. king, where you know the Brahmins they want all the animals slaughtered. So five hundred of them was the number, but that's relative, and that. Um, it's more meat than we need, but hey, let's have a ceremony, and the king will get great blessings from that. It's like so living in this a, is where in all of that got started. Of... And by the time about 800 BC, the Brahmins owned all the land. Well, no, wait a minute. I'm talking. Sorry about that. That's the wrong date. Okay. Um, l- let us say about 1700 BC, they had all the land. And then that's when things started really breaking down badly in Persia. And that there was a major Persian invasion. Now, there are some Indians that says that, well, the Indo-Europeanness of the Pali and the Sanskrit is rooted in India and spread out. But there's pretty clear evidence that, no, the original Indo-European language was Persian. And that it went out that in both directions, and the Persian language, uh, uh, or whatever was Persian, uh, became the Indo-European language that was brought by the Aryans and, and the armies. When they came in, they started taking the land back from the Brahmins because they weren't part of the culture at the time. Part of that military that came in had baggage men, carpenters, uh, wagoneers, a whole, I mean, an army travels on his stomach, and about half the people that are traveling with the army, or more than half, are not in the army. They're support for the army. So now mm-hmm. you have two classes of people moving in on top of two classes of people already there. And it took the Brahmins about 300 years to say, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. And so this is the forecast. The Brahmins, the military, the soldiers, the aristocracy, the merchant class, the, uh, the ones who were the baggage guys for the original armies coming through, and then the original sutras, the ones who were at the bottom of the, the bucket in India when the invasion happened, remained in the bottom of the bucket. And so Such these a... are the four classes, and, they, and it happened over a long period of time and there was out-and-out out conflict between the Aryans and the Brahmins for many centuries. 
See what the ego does when it's just like let loose on the world? It creates all this like bullshit. <laughs> I'm this. I'm the king. I'm, I'm this. I'm, I'm that. So crazy. It's you can see the the psychopathy of the world collective consciousness. Like it's the ego run amok. You know. <laughs> well. It doesn't take a whole lot of water for mold to form. And once mold forms, things really fall apart. So yeah. it doesn't take that much ego. Just a little bit of selfishness does a lot of damage. <laughs> that's, that's the craziest part, you know? <laughs> it's like there's so much, you know? And even just a little bit, it can do so much, like you said. It's crazy. So... Buddy. <laughs> there was there was a time getting back to our point there was a time when a bunch of people in fact there was kind of a movement that happened uh, that I think that it was somewhat associated with the Vietnamese war it was during those times and that there was a group of people who then came all in a huff from Bangkok to confront Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa on why did he eat meat Oh, really? Yeah. And his answer was, I don't eat meat. I eat food. Yeah. That was his answer. I eat food. The food I'm given, I eat. Which is exactly the way that the Buddha talked about it. Now, one like, of the things... Yeah, that... Like a lion. That's what lions do. Mm -hmm. It's not like they're vicious or they're evil. They just eat. You because... eat. They don't think about it. <laughs> they just eat. You know? Mm -hmm. But the Buddha was really against um, sacrifice. Mm -hmm. Animal sacrifice. That's what the big yeah. thing was. And I think that the, uh, at, the, at that time, Panatipata was not a generalized idea like it is in Western Buddhism of thou shalt not kill anything but that it was really the part of the ceremony of the taking of the breath as part of the ceremony for the sacrifice, the, sl the, in the slaughter of the innocents, as uh, uh, I think it's someplace in the Bible. So that's the real issue, is to not ceremonially kill animals for, you know, uh, sacred or um, hoped for comma reasons. I killed this animal for the for the god, and so the god's going to bestow some benefit on me. We don't look even. In fact, the whole mentality of religion has been changed now, away mm -hmm. from animal sacrifice. So the, there are very yeah. few places that it's still done. They throw an occasional daughter into a volcano, but other than that, how <laughs> the sacrifice is from the pocketbook from the oh uh, that's right the preachers would say oh you got to dig down deep <laughs> yeah. in gotta their pocket <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah the same old con is going on the religions have changed the object but it's the same old con yeah totally yeah, if only they could just be content with very little. They'd be so happy, you know? Mm-hmm.
it's like almost like a magic trick. It works so well. Like I don't know why people just don't adopt it. Oh, because <laughs> I, it doesn't support the culture. If if yeah. too many people do that, then the culture will start to fa- falter and fail. But in yeah. fact, there is one example that I know of where that happened in a kind of spectacular way. This oh, was the roots of the downfall of the um, Angor civilization. Hmm. I'll go ahead and I, tell you the story. It's a very interesting story. The Mekong floods every year from the mountains. Mm-hmm. The delta in uh, Vietnam can't handle the water. So it backs up on some of the tributaries. One of the tributaries that the Mekong backs up in was the area where Angor was up in um, that part of it, and that it actually would then form a lake every year, which was great for harvesting rice. And so it became a rice civilization. But the Brahmins had it wired because they knew that the river was going to back up every year. And there was a point in time when it actually stopped flowing this way and started reverse flowing. They had runners to skin downstream to find out when that was coming. And so at the right time, they could have a ceremony. And while the Brahmins were having this great big tea ceremony with all of this right there at the water's edge and pouring water in like they did in the movie Ten Commandments and all of that kind of stuff, and the water starts backing up magically. And that gave them so much power. Whoa. Okay, so the Hindu, uh, that was a Hindu kingdom. But Buddhists came from Siam, and they started coming in great numbers. And the Buddhists were the ones who said, hmm, let's figure this out, because, you know, we're not raised in this culture. Let's go figure out about the river. And they figured out what was going on. And Uh, along with that, Buddhism began to spread because the Brahmins started losing their power. The king started losing his power. Another part of the issue was is that they had already overcut the forest to make room for more and more rice and, and all of that kind of stuff. And so they grew to the point of being not sustainable anymore. And to now yeah. the Buddhists come in and prove that, hey, this has all been a sham all along. Wow. And the army resigned and quit. And people started going home and left Angor. Leaving it ripe for getting taken over. And then the Siamese military came in. And because so much of the NC was also completely surrounded by huge forest. Mm -hmm. And the Angors cut that forest down themselves to make room for, for rice planting. And so they made themselves vulnerable from outside attack. But it was due to the issue of the Buddhists coming in first to set the stage so that the Siam military could just wipe them out. Interesting. That is an interesting story, isn't it? Yeah. And so that's what Buddhism will do for a culture. If the Americans become Buddhists, the Russians will come right in. Yeah, I I feel like um, it's such a thing. It's in Hinduism they call it like bhakti, like it mm-hmm. takes for an Devotional individual yoga, right? 
for individuals to change, it requires such a spark. Some of the Hindus say that it's not even up to us. It's, it's up to fate or God or the Lord. And it, it, I kind of agree. It's like it takes so much for that spark of bhakti within an individual to change what they are, what they believe themselves to be. It's not, it can be done in a group. Yeah. <laughs> it is contagious. It is, yeah. It can be, can it be done in a group though? That's what I it wonder often about. Is. It appears in to small be groups. It happened with the Buddha all the time. He could talk people into giving up their shit. <laughs> Easy. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Yeah, and even some uh, some religious leaders, like um, all different types of gurus, can do the same, or to can do something similar at least. Not 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 as perfect as the Buddha, because I believe. Well, that's was... the art of talking people into feeling good. I have a feeling he didn't really talk much. I have a feeling like he was just in the woods with some dudes, Who's and they this? were just so happy. I have a feeling like the original Buddha, like uh, Siddhartha Gautama, like he was just in the woods with his buddies and like he just chilling all day and they weren't really into like making giant, like getting giant groups together. They were just content with the 12 of them or, or like 14 of them. <laughs> I have a feeling it was a lot less like, I don't know. Do you ever get that feeling? <laughs> Actually, from the suttas, we can see on more than one occasion that the Buddha would give a short explanation. And then when he left, then the monks, not wanting to bother him to explain, would ask one of the other senior monks like uh, uh, Mahakasapa, Magala, or Sariputta. And that's what gives then the sutta is that this uh, high-class, uh, long-time uh, monk would then explain in detail for the other monks because they had been with the Buddha for a long time and knew what he was saying when he would speak it in a short way. That happens on, on many occasions. Also, there is at least one sutta to where the conversation between the Buddha and Ananda is, is that the Buddha admits that when it is royalty, when it is Brahmins, when it is outsiders who come for an audience to ask questions, devas and aristocrats and that kind of thing, that he only wants to give them enough answer to satisfy them so that he can get rid of them. <laughs> yeah, a lot of... They go back yeah. into silence. So you, you're, you're on the right path. I mean, I've got the evidence, though. But your gut feeling was spot on. <laughs> that's, how, that's, that's why I like learning about uh, more contemporary sages or enlightened men like Ramana Maharshi, because... Don't it, learn about them. Go get that spark. Go get I got that. It. You, you've got to get, <laughs> got to get on fire with the Dhamma. Oh, I've been on fire, but now I just kind of like now more you're just smoldering. <laughs> yeah, I'm just blowing smoke up my own. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I like reading for entertainment now, but it's and for for curiosity. But I like to see the uh, the similarities between mo- modern saints and the key aspect here is I have to believe that they're enlightened in order for this to work. But I like like Ramana Maharshi. I believe he was fully enlightened being. And I and it I love seeing matter those labels. Those labels are not uh, that's that those labels are so Western Buddhism. It's so much. I mean, this is part of the culture. Think about that guy who is so well off in his own mental state that he doesn't have to put a label like enlightened on himself. That enlightenment is I mean, when the Buddha talked about it, in fact the word Buddha or bow, like in Sambojanga that I was talking about earlier, is a verb, not a noun. Yeah, and he referred to himself, I remember you saying in a video I watched, he referred to himself as, is it, yeah, the awakened one, is that No, it? the one who is here now, the one who oh, is, is that, present. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, kind of the same thing. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's As opposed cool. to be in the hindrance of the past and the future. Just be here now. Right. But I have to, uh, I have to, I have, the reason I find it interesting when I research Ramana is because I, I believe him to be enlightened, like the Buddha. Because if I didn't, I'd just be reading a paper on like how to repair I but if you, put, if you give him <laughs> that, then then at least we have to go for adding to that list Achanpo, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, Bhikkhu Buddha Gosajarn, uh, Achan Panyananda, Achan Sumedho, Achan Amaro. I mean, let's just keep the I list do. going. I do. I consider, I consider you that. I can definitely consider <laughs> Buddha Dasa Bhikkhu that. Anamale Swami. A student of Ramana, I consider that. I consider uh-huh. many. Yeah, very many. So we don't need those labels. Those labels are completely <laughs> useless. It's it's actually a goal to strive for until you've got it. And then you recognize, yeah, <laughs> what's the point? <laughs> yeah, you have, to go, you have to go beyond labels so much so that you can actually start using the labels again with no attachment. So that's what I'm trying to do. Like when I'm reading about Ramana, I just find it fascinating the similarities between him and other enlightened beings like the Buddha the bo- or Jesus. The, the enlightened beings don't say it, though. Yeah, they say that, but I think they do say it. <laughs> because it's just well, a word. Well, they'll admit, they'll admit to it. But they don't advertise it. They don't put it in the front of their book. Right. Well, you shouldn't be. Yeah, they shouldn't have. If they have a book, it should be. It should not be sold. It should be given away for free, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, enlightenment. It has a negative effect. Or talking about it even has a negative effect because people have made it like this. Just another Western mountain to climb trophy mm-hmm. at the end of a finish line rat race BS. Just I don't another see, car you cannot afford. And I don't see it that way. I see enlightenment as something that should be talked about as a different as a different a different way to live and perceive things other than other other than most people, just by you got rid of your suffering somehow. 
And well, let's, let's, look about, at the, let's look at the word enlightenment for a second. The word itself has a, a root. Sorry, my camera. And it's not a ceiling fan. That's all I'm seeing right now is a ceiling fan. I know. I'm sorry. I'm going to fix it. Let's see. <laughs> okay. Come on, fan. Yeah, there's a ceiling fan. Now, how do I turn this on me? I think you need to move the camera. Either that or jump. <laughs> oh, now you've got no heart. No, you need to move the machine, not touch any uh, toys on it or buttons, but move your actual, if you've got a, you've got a cell phone. So tilt the cell phone. I haven't tilt it. Okay, that's, that's a good way. Now tilt it downward where the, towards the floor. Sorry. Then I won't deal with you. Can you see me if I just do this? Oh, now we've got you. Now I see you. The only difference is I can't see the screen with you on it now because the camera's facing me. So I must have pressed something, but I'm sorry. Turn, turn this, your, your, your camera sideways. Or you turn your cell phone. There you go. That's... Sorry, I pressed the button where it, it was looking at the outward camera and not the camera facing me, and I don't know <laughs> how to return it to what it was. So. <laughs> All right. So we were talking about the word enlightenment. Yeah. The, the root of the word enlightenment is light. And that we can look at the actual teachings of the Buddha using that word. The Anapanasati Sutta says that in, we practice Anapanasati for the fulfillment of these uh, four foundations of mindfulness, the Satipatthana. And we practice Anapanasati and the Satipatthana for the fulfillment of the seven factors of enlightenment, the Sambhojanga the seven-headed Naga that protects the Buddha. And then we practice the seven factors of enlightenment for the fulfillment of these two kinds of enlightenment, these two kinds of light. One is knowledge. We're turning on the lights. We can see what's going on. We can figure things out. We can have wisdom to look rather than being uh, asleep. We're awake. We're, we turn on the lights. We're not in the dark. We have no more doubt. Okay? The second kind of light is not heavy. That once we see the burdens we carry, we set them down. Mm -hmm. Okay? That can be done by anyone at any time. And the more often you do it, then the more enlightened you are, I guess. So it's yeah. relatively speaking... So it's okay to talk about enlightenment in those terms because it's just a description of somebody who's no longer attached to the false self or I or ego. Actually, no, that's what comes first. There are 10 fetters, and that's the first fetter to go. Mm -hmm. 
in the sense of knowledge. But that's Mm. one of the knowledge fetters. Another of the knowledge fetters would be attachments to the world. And all of the rites, rules, rituals, ways of doing things, shouldas, oughtas, wouldas, couldas, and all of that that uh, Eric Byrne talks about, the parent ego state, that the Buddha calls paramasa or silabata paramasa. The third knowledge to be removed, or the fetter of the third knowledge, is doubt. So that you come to the position that you know the Buddhist teachings, you understand exactly how to practice, and you're good to go. You've got everything you need. In a, in, a, in a way, you can say you now have packed your bag and you're ready to go to the seven yep. other fetters. The seven other fetters, then, are the deliverance fetters, the lightening up. So the first thing we do is we lighten up our attitude and we stop being angry. We lighten up our attitude and we stop wanting things. Mm-hmm. That's the Doesn't fifth, that all... fourth, and the fifth fetter. Uh-huh. And then the last five fetters, which are almost always something that can be seen inside the mind, but uh, the others you can see physically. This is why they're called a rupa, is because it's always inside the mind. All right. And that would be uh, to give up the fetter of or the heaviness of anxiety and restlessness and wanting to go someplace, etc., like that. That's one of the fetters. Another fetter, which is really difficult for Westerners to deal with, is where you were talking about ego, and in the Pali we talk about it as mana. And mm-hmm. the, um, the word actually means competition or conceit. I am because I win. And I am not because I lose. This is a a basic up, down, back, forth, basic part that comes out of the uh, instinct of self-preservation. Just like fear. So the next one that we have to deal with is fear, most specifically fear of death. The fear of being in a human body and being not in a human body, which means gone. This is the Rupa A Rupa Raga. Rupa Raga A Rupa Raga. The last to go is ignorance. Why? Because we have to accept the fact that we really are ignorant. Mm-hmm. It's not that we know it all. No, we, we turn on the lights and we drop it all and we recognize that we'll never know anything, everything. That actually knowledge is the thing to drop. Don't all those all those kind of just get dissolved if you cut off like the head of the snake, so to speak, which is the attachment to a sense of self. Big the big work is to come out of our anger, to stop being angry. Yeah. If you're selfless, there's nobody there to be angry, right? <laughs> if everything is good, then there, even if there is a self, there's still no anger. I think at some point it can also just be like a biological... Uh... It runs deep. It's called instinctual and definitely biological in the sense of the DNA is the, is the product 
of all of the millennial over time of our survival instinct, our desire to want to stay alive. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, all anger aside from like self-defense or just natural coming out of anything like that. All anger is an offensive self-defense. We feel threatened. But <laughs> my son's putting his foot. I right. know, right? <laughs> Enjoy. It's <laughs> quite a foot. <laughs> it makes me laugh. Yeah, he wants I'm, your attention and affection. You can give him that too. You can tickle uh, him. Oh, he's had a great Christmas. So yeah, he's gotten a lot of, a lot of stuff. <laughs> I'm trying to get rid of stuff, but we keep acquiring it. But we're very blessed in that regard. But um, yeah, getting rid of anger is no easy task. But um, actually, it's dead easy if you remember. Yeah, it's no. It's all I about guess, sati. That's where we begin to say, okay, I've got to have sati quick, fast yeah. sati, fast. The first fast is when we're in the middle of an argument mm -hmm. and we say, wait a minute, I don't need to be in this argument. And then it gets even faster than that when we can say, wait a minute, I don't, I, I can, you know, just one bark or just one, ah, or just one movement. Uh, and then we stop. And then the next level is, is that we become uh, aware of this motivation to, to speak or to do something, but we keep it on the inside. This is now at the level of the anagami. He does not let it out. He does not manifest it. Yeah, to not manifest it. Uh, are you still there? Yeah, I'm here. Oh, no, sorry. I'm not here. <laughs> the, <laughs> the connection is good. <laughs> yeah, like to get rid of anger outwardly and both, both inwardly is... Um, so different than just not acting angry, but still feeling the anger inside. Ah, it feels... but if you can stop it that early, then you can stop it even a little bit quicker. Oh, yeah. Like, you don't... I, I believe, and I've experienced, like, now especially, it's so much lighter when I'm faced with situations that used to make me angry. Now it's like... Um, that's one of the phases. That's a good phase, is to recognize, hey, that used to make me angry, and it doesn't make me angry anymore. Because the game I used to play before was bottling it up, but trying not to act angry. But the anger was still there. Well, that's an improvement over taking a sledgehammer to the whole thing. All right, all right. That's, <laughs> how I, that's how I used to be. But now, I don't even have it like inwardly <sighs> at all. Take a deep breath. It feels it so much lighter. Just body chemistry. That's all it is, just body chemistry. Yeah, that's okay. what I say, too. It's just like neurons firing, releasing chemicals from your whatever, and it just stays there for a certain amount of time. And it's kind of silly when you think about it, you know? How much a little chemical can affect but your you can whole see, life. You can see that it's a uh, survival mechanism. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and uh, your your brain or body, whatever, it kind of perceives it as a threat, 
but it's all imaginary most of the time. <laughs> most of the time it's imaginary, right. I yeah. tell students often, look around you. There are no alligators in your house. You don't have any pythons there. The mafia is not standing with a knife. Yeah. The police are not breaking down your door. You're safe. Why do we feel uncomfortable yeah. and insecure? Yeah, one of my other teachers, uh, Sailor Bob, he says, you can't feed somebody with the word potatoes. You can't, you can't quench somebody's thirst with the word water or the thought of water. It's like it's, it's purely illusory. Ah, but you can quench the thirst with words. Yeah. Yeah, what is those words? Everything's all right. I'm good. No, I don't need any water. I'm fine. You could quench the thirst of... Um, you can quench... Um, the desire to become fully realized. Or words can help to do that, but they can't get you there. It's one of the steps of Anapanasati. The Buddha makes a big point of it. And a lot of meditation teachers don't understand it at all. Because it's only, you know, short. He didn't give a long description of it. But Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa really goes into it. It's normally referred to as step 10 of Anapanasati, which is gladdening the mind. And I tell students like this. You have spent the last number of years, 10, 20 years, talking yourself into feeling bad. Now it's time to talk yourself into feeling good. Yeah. If you can do the negative aspects of it, you can definitely do the positive aspects. If you remember. But now we've gotten into such a habit of doing the negative that we forget to do the positive. <laughs> Yeah, that's why I think repetition is so important in continuity to constantly. And I've heard many teachers say this from many different walks of life, but to constantly remind yourself. And it's not it's not a punishment. Unremitting. Just keep like remembering how quick is your sati? How fast are you going to remember to look at what you're doing? And it's good for students too to keep in mind that it's it's a positive thing that'll make you feel better. Like it's not a boring continuity. It shouldn't be a struggle of constantly reminding yourself. It's like the reason to do anything. So when you're constantly reminding yourself, it should be like a joyous, peaceful experience every moment of every moment of life, you know? Sure. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, it's not I work. Now but, that I see that, I don't see why anyone would do any other kind of meditation. Because all the other men, even going deep is still just a form of suffering. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very, uh, it's a very light, pure, peaceful way to be. And it could, you can have it always. And it's always there. It's always been there. There and is a situation. And that situation is upon the delivery of the brand newborn infant into mom's arms. This is a bonding moment that is so gushy in feeling that many people want to be there at that point. Even uh, people working on the maternity ward will drop what they're doing to go be there when the mom gets that babe. Okay, this is bonding, and there's actually a bonding chemical that's in the brain called uh, oxycodone. And this um, bonding chemical 
persist with her. That's why moms are so good at feeding, changing diapers, burping, carrying in infants around. But by the time that they're not four years old, we're still in the nurturing stage then. But by the time the child is six or seven, now we change the whole show and, tr- and put them to work. Go to school, mm-hmm. pick up your clothes, answer me when I call, put down your cell phone and do your homework, you know, the whole nine yards. Yeah. And we take that on, and then we are in that mentality forever for the rest of our yeah. lives, looking for that original nurturing and not know how to give it to ourselves. That's what step 10 of Anapanasati really is. The gladdening of the mind is nurturing yourself. Yeah, with my seven-year-old, I, uh, I can feel the inner pull to like fall in line with how my parents were with me. Uh, and it's like, I don't want to do that. I want them to like, I want them to have a sense of, um, of joy and peace forever. So I try to, uh, as much as I can, I try to get them away from uh, conventional. The more you do with them with that as children, the less they'll have to undo as an adult. Definitely. Yeah. If you start early, it's like they're just born with such a, they're just pure peace. And that peace remains. And it's mm-hmm. always there. It's we're born okay. Up. Yeah. And then we're put to work. Then we are reborn as animals. You know about yeah. the uh, the four woeful states. It sounds familiar. The hell world, the hungry ghost, the animal, and the assurance. Okay, we are reborn, constantly reborn as animals. What is an animal? A draft animal does what he is told to do with the promise of a reward he never gets. Yeah. And so that plow horse has to go out and plow down his pasture. Yeah. All of the goodies and all the delightful things that he's had in that pasture. Now he's forced to go plow it up, and all he gets as a result is hay. Yeah, it's like he and he has this magical word or <laughs> word. He has this magical thing inside of him, where if like he only can think of food, it would appear right in front of him. You know, like that's what like he is like. He can he can get all the food he wants. He just doesn't know it. Mm-hmm. He, He's been brainwashed to think that he, All is he has to do is escape the culture he's in and the owner who thinks the man who thinks he owns the horse. Yeah. Well, guess what? Our parents are taught to own their children. The parents yeah. job to make you sure you do your homework. Yeah. It's, uh, and you know, there's, uh, there's different ways of doing things. Like, I don't think, like, I think a kid could still go to school and have a relatively normal, peaceful, well, quote, normal, peaceful, joyous life. But uh, it definitely... Peaceful and joyous, I go along with. Normal, I'm not so sure of. Natural would be a better word, but normal <laughs> is what all of the people who suffer do. That's the puta jana. That's the ordinary people. They're doing con- the normal stuff. In this context... When I say normal, I mean like how I perceive it, like peaceful and joyous. Like, okay. <laughs> like they should have. So a, you're saying our culture then is abnormal, and I'll go along with that in a oh, way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but because the culture uh, is doing it, yeah. that becomes the norm. Well, our culture, look what they teach us. They teach us to 
have zero empathy. Yeah, Join the army and kill people. <laughs> they have zero empathy. They teach us to judge others that are different than us. They teach us constant growth in every spectrum of life, which is an unsustainable thing. Life is always circular. It's never constantly going one way or the other. It's just, it, it just is. So, in a sense, our culture is, is raising very, uh, the epitome of what I don't want to become. <laughs> and I don't want anybody to become. And it's well, funny that... that's what the culture is. Now, here's something yeah. about uh, the, the animals. The Buddha did not try to repair his culture at all. Rather, it's to be escaped. It's to be left. Uh, totally. One student mm-hmm. gave gave the idea that he saw a bucket of clams, big, big container of clams, and one of the clams is trying to crawl out and escape, and the others grab him and pull the clam back into the bucket. And all of the clams should want to escape. They say, hey, he got out, let's get out too. And nobody does it. The clams even will bring the other back into the bucket. Yeah, I would like them to escape, but it's not at the forefront of, uh, <laughs> like, it's like a life jacket. You can't save anybody unless you're saved yourself. Mm-hmm. So you have to put on that life jacket, and then you could worry about saving other people after you save yourself. You, 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 you can. All you can do is to show other people how to save themselves. Yeah. But you, yeah. Can't, you can't do it for them. You can't, can't do society. It's like addicts in recovery in those. I haven't been to any AA meetings, but I have had my own addiction problems to certain things. But I know from hearing about people in AA that they say that, oh, yeah, we know that like 99 percent of you aren't going to listen or are going to go back to using or whatever. But they say all that we can do is take you and try to put you in an environment where you have the lowest probability of that happening and the highest probability of success. And they're like, that's all we can do. We know that we have no control. But here's the key ingredient. The key ingredient here is right view and right attitude. If they see the dukkha in the drinking, then they will want to come out. And if they cannot see the dukkha, in fact, many of them see the dukkha of the AA, and they want out of that. So. Uh, and then, in fact, uh, the biggest danger is is when the court will say, "Okay, Mr. Alcoholic, you've got to go do AA." He, the 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 yeah. court, the uh, the judge is the one who's at the magical thinking. Yeah, that's but the AA is going to do it for him. No, it's always the guy's got to do it himself. That's yeah. why they want to put people in prison is to punish them because they don't have a clue about how to rehabilitate. If they really wanted to rehabilitate people, it would be something akin to just like a Buddhist group of a whole bunch of people talking about Buddhist stuff. <laughs> like it'd be a the, retreat. The spark, the desire to get out. That's what is the, the thing. You will have to provide your own fuel. Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa can only provide the spark. Right. Definitely. But Dhammarada, I must know going, unfortunately. I appreciate you calling. This has been a delightful call. I really enjoy talking with you. 
Oh, I love talking to you. I think I think you're the Buddha. <laughs> and I'm not just saying that. You're you're awesome. So thank you so much. Hope if that can be a spark for you to do it too, then good. You are also the Buddha. Uh -huh. You're all right already. You don't uh -huh. need anything. You're good to go. I agree. You're already <laughs> enlightened. Stop striving Thank for you anything. So much. <laughs> you have a good one. Bye bye. See you, Mr. Buddha Dasa.